morning, everybody. Welcome to church. So glad to see you all here this morning. Hope you came ready to praise the Lord, worship Him, enter into His presence. We know that He's got something to say to you through Pastor Tim this morning. We pray that you will be able to connect and meet with Him um, in the worship time as well. So before we start, I thought I would introduce some of the folks on the platform. Um, I called people who are regulars here, the normal people, but... What I meant to say was, for those of you that are regulars here might not know some of these snowbirds, so I'm going to introduce everybody up here just so that you know. Kim Seegers has uh, been going to this church for a while, but she's got a lot of talent. We're welcome to have her. Emma is a normal person. We're glad to have her. And Brett Margaron is also a person who's been going on and off to this church for decades, I think. So he brings a great talent. And you all know Doug. He's, uh, he's also a normal person, believe it or not. So my name is Eric Gustafson. So anyway, we're here to help lead you in worship. We're going to start with a wonderful song set. And that is because the title of both of these songs have the word wonderful in it. So we're going to lead, in, lead you in worship with those. But before we do, let's set the stage with a scripture reading. We're going to read it responsively. So if in honor of the word and for getting ready to sing, please stand and let's share God's word with each other. So follow the prompts on the screen. It's responsive, so I'll read one slide and you'll read the next. So here it is. This is from the book of Romans. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. God's law was given so that all people could see just how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ.
You may be seated. Good morning. Great to be gathered with you here this morning. If you are new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. And as I walked in this morning and like looked at my watch with the temperature, and it was like the first digit was a three, like, it was like 39. And like, and like that was a little annoying. But the past week we were at our kind of our Northwoods Pastors Network where we all get together, and there are six churches represented in that group, and five of us had baptisms last Sunday. <laughs> and the sixth one had baptisms today. <laughs> and like, I've never been more thankful that we chose the correct Sunday, right? Like, it's easy to take for granted when you like, get the right Sunday instead of the wrong Sunday, but just thankful for, for that. If you are new or visiting, is there anything you'd like to communicate with us about yourself, there's a Connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to fill that out and let us know any information you'd like us to know, and then you can put those in the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place tithes and offerings. You know, we're just glad that you're here with us. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that following our service this morning, We'll have our quarterly meeting where we'll give you an update on where our last fiscal year ended up financially, where we're at so far this year financially, and also share a lot about things that are coming up in the fall that we're really excited about seeing take place, and so we'd encourage you to come be a part of that meeting just to hear about what's coming up for us all this fall. One little thing to hear more about at that meeting, but also mention it now, is that in two Sundays on September 10th, we'll have our... Harvest Fest will be here at the church following Sunday school. So it'll be out in the parking lot, weather permitting. And we'll, we'll use that time to dedicate the playground and our new nursery downstairs. And we will um, yeah, just have a good time. There'll be food and horse-drawn wagon rides and just all kinds of things going on. So we'd encourage you to come be a part of, of that with us on September 10th. Also on September 21st and 22nd, through the 24th, third day, a women's retreat out at Fort Wilderness. Um, one of the speakers will be our own Ann Epler. So if you're interested in being a part of that, there's information in your bulletin about that as well. So this morning, one of the things we look to do as the church is like, mention and support uh, missionaries. And so upcoming, we have a, a couple from our own church who are going to be heading out to be missionaries. And to tell us more about that, I'm going to invite... Chase and Emma Kirby up to tell us more about what they're doing and where they're, where they're going. Well, good morning. As Pastor Tim said, I'm Chase and this is my wife, Emma Kirby. We're the youngest of the Kirby clan. <laughs> um, so to start, I'd like to open, up, open us up with some prayer, if you'd bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here today. Thank you for this opportunity for Emma and I to serve and love your people. Even though that what we may share today may be hard and challenging, we pray that your goodness would shine through. Uh, we ask your blessing over our time together. May we pray. Amen. So, do we, oh yeah, there they are. <laughs> so, 
we had a video to show, but some technological errors occurred. So Emma is going to kind of give you the spark notes of what the video entailed. Um, so there was a documentary, the organization that we're um, going through is creating. It's called Life Jacket. Um, you can actually look it up online yourself if you really want to take a peek at it. Um, but it's just kind of giving you insight of what's really going on over in um, Greece, which we're serving in Lesbos, in case Chase didn't mention that earlier. Um, right now there's thousands of refugees from all over the Middle East, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Ukraine, Syria, Somalia, um, all the mid Middle Eastern countries who are just fleeing from war conflict or other governmental issues. Um, and they're ending up on this little island, which it does sound beautiful, but um, as you can see from the picture of the beginning of the video right now, it's not so beautiful from everything that's going on. Um, so if we go to the next slide, a little bit of this video was about a place called um, Camp Moria. So Camp Moria was one of the first refugee camps that were kind of established in Greece when the refugees were fleeing. Um, it was established back in 2013, um, and it was described as a modern-day concentration camp for various reasons. Um, but one of the things was due to the size of Camp Moria and the amount of refugees that they were getting, um, they had a lack of resources, lack of support. They weren't able to support the refugees that we would hope that they could and would. Um, and due to the overcrowding area, Camp Moria back in 2020 unfortunately suffered a tragic fire. Um, and with the fire, it left about 20,000 refugees with basically nowhere to go stuck on this little island. Um, from this fire and the organizations that we're going with, there was many organizations and volunteers that kind of partnered together and said, hey, like, we can't let Camp Moria happen again. Like what happened was horrible to the refugees. It was horrible to the government um, patrol borders, what happened to them. Um, so these organizations, which will be on the next slide, kind of partnered together and they formed a new camp, Camp Mavrovuni. It's Greek, I'm not perfect at it. Um, so they're partnering together, which is who we'll be serving with um, to hope to better support our refugees. So a little bit about these organizations. Um, we kind of listed them in three different tiers, as you can see. So the overarching organization is called Eurorelief, which some of you may have heard. Um, so Eurorelief is kind of a nonprofit organization um, that's responsible for, like, the shelter for refugees, the social care of refugees, the education, the health care, and so forth. Um, and the next one down is Teach Beyond. So Teach Beyond is kind of like their educational branch, which is specifically who Chase and I will both be going through. Um, and through Teach Beyond, next one down, is Beyond Borders. Um, Beyond Borders is the curriculum and instruction that Teach Beyond and Eurorelief use to teach refugees. Um, it's a very trauma-enforced um, trauma practice, if that makes sense. Um, trying to do some rebuilding of social skills, trying to keep things friendly, um, just to prepare children if they are able to go to another country to kind of socialize, interact, and keep up what's going on. And that's kind of the ultimate goal, is making sure that they are prepared for the next step after they get out of the camp. So that was all of our background info. So next slide shows uh, what will we do and when. So January through March of 2024, we will be serving directly on site in Camp Marvel Rooney. I guess I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so this camp has 
right now there's about 4,000 people there. Um, we spoke with the camp director last week, uh, and she said that number could rise to 6,000 by the time we get there. Um, things fluctuate very often, and so that was one of the big things that she emphasized was flexibility and unity is what she needs from her team, um, and just be prepared for whatever. She said, this is what we're telling you you're going to do, and that may change by the time you arrive. Um, more so in my case instead of Emma's. But So Emma will be serving as an educator. Uh, she'll be teaching unaccompanied minors in quarantined areas. Um, so these parents may put their children on a boat and, and send them to safety, or their parents may pass away in the um, journey across the ocean. Um, Emma will also be providing English classes to toddlers and mothers individually. Um, she would go around to the tents and meet with them because a lot of these women are illiterate. They don't, they don't, they're not educated in the countries that they come from. Um, the, <clears throat> the classroom that they have set up in the refugee camp is in a storage container, like a big shipping container. Um, so there's seating on the floor. They opened up, opened up the doors uh, and put a canopy over the one end of it so there's more seating for children to learn. Um, and then another thing that you'd be doing is going around into the refugee tents uh, and meeting with children who are still on the wait list who aren't able to attend school yet because of the limited room. As far as me, um, there's four different areas that the camp director said this is where you may be. Um, so the first being the refugee men skills area. So the majority of refugees are young single men. Um, so obviously their, their goal isn't for these men to live in the camps for the rest of their lives. They want them to move and find different countries and so what they're doing is teaching these young men skills that they can have when they move, that they can find jobs when they move into the countries. Um, so they're teaching skills such as cutting hair, welding, automotive work, uh, carpentry, a variety of things. Um, another area I could be in is the refugee men's community engagement area. So this is a like a lounge area in the camp um, because a lot of these young men spend their days sitting in their tents alone. So this gives them an opportunity to gather fellowship. Um, they drink tea, conversations, play games, um, just to help enrich their lives a little more. Along with all of that, um, the Euro Relief and Teach Beyond, those organizations working in the camp, uh, have daily meetings. We meet in the mornings and they say, okay, this is where everybody's going. This is kind of the situation in the camp today, things to be, watch out for. Um, there's weekly devotionals with Teach Beyond. Um, there's several churches on the island that we can attend, um, so we're looking forward to checking some of those out and seeing what that brings. Good grief. Can you tell we're not public speakers? <laughs> and it's, 
It's so hard because we like know and love all of you, but we're like, we're so nervous right now. But thank you for bearing with us this far. Um, so on the next slide, you can see a section that says, how can you help, which I know a lot of you have been asking us and messaging us, which is great. Um, so one of the first things that we definitely need um, is prayer. Um, first, we ask that you pray for the refugees that we will be encountering. Um, obviously, you can imagine what they're going through is horrible and tragic, and they're facing many adversities. Uh, which gives them no hope. They kind of feel hopeless, like they're stuck there. Um, a lot of the refugees have been there for years, and they are at the point where it's just like, will I ever leave? Is there ever a real escape, or is this kind of it? Um, so just pray for them, for their mental health, for their well-being. Um, secondly, for safety for Chase and I, um, I wish we could say we are worldly travelers who do mission trips all the time because God equipped us for this, but truthfully, we never leave three lakes. So this is definitely out of our comfort zone. Um, and we've never been overseas, really, so just safety for traveling there, safety for when we are there, because um, we will be directly in the camp, and then obviously safety as we travel back um, would be great. Um, and then lastly, our prayer for enough funding. Um, we've already had so many generous donations and just support from everyone and all the prayers. It's been great. Um, God has really shown through in many different ways throughout this process, so we just pray that um, we continue to be supported and that we would be able to reach our funding goal um, in order to go on this trip. Um, on the second bullet point, you can see there's donation items needed. So one thing I want to point out, when we say we're going to Greece, I'm sure a lot of you are like, wow, beautiful 80-degree Greece, like, that's going to be wonderful. No, we, we, we had a little bit of a rude awakening. It's going to be anywhere from like 32 to maybe 45 degrees when we're there. Um, but no snow. We can't complain. Um, so it, is, it does get a little bit chilly. Um, the camp that we're going to is in a lot or a very desperate need of uh, winter clothing, specifically for men. Um, they're looking for shoes, pants, coats, gloves, hats. Um, we can... We'll, We'll be posting a list of this on our Facebook page if you are someone who likes to visually see, okay, what's really needed. Um, but a lot of these people who come over are, they have one set of clothes. Most of the time, those clothes are soiled. Um, and like I mentioned, it gets pretty chilly. So a t-shirt and pants that are soaking wet might not be suitable when it's 32 degrees and raining and very, very windy. Um, so yes, winter clothing would be great. We haven't yet talked about um, where to send the donations, but possibly talk with the church of maybe we can do something here. Um, so we will be having more information as to where to send the donations if you feel called to donate and do so. Um, second thing is classroom supplies. Um, kind of think of just basically simple arts and crafts stuff, but they are in need of bilingual books for children, um, paint and paintbrushes, glue sticks, beads, pencils, scissors, um, anything crafty. There's nothing specific. I'm sure that anything they receive, it's something that they need and something that they would want. Um, so if you're someone who has lots of extra stuff laying around and you'd like to donate, um, that would be wonderful. The next thing is sponsorship. Um, Teach Beyond has a sponsorship, sponsorship, apparently I can't talk today, a sponsorship for missionaries that you can support if you feel the uh, need to. Otherwise, you can also sponsor a child or someone in need um, through this organization as well. You can go to their website at teachbeyond.org um, and explore their options there. Um, spread the word for us. We would really love it. Um, pray for us. It's huge. Um, anything to kind of get the word out to really show people what's going on, what's happening with God's people um, is important to us. And then lastly, um, financial donations. 
Um, if you feel called to, obviously anything would be a huge help. We do have a QR code up here, um, which you can donate online. Um, right now, we don't have our account opened up through Teach Beyond yet. They're still kind of fixing the nuts and bolts for everything to get our account open. So right now, it is just a GoFundMe, but that account should be open soon. Um, otherwise, any other way that you feel necessary to give, um, we appreciate you know whatever comes our way. So, and thank you for those who have done so so far. On uh, the final slide, <laughs> yeah. So we just wanted to say thank you for listening. Um, one of the things that has been on our mind or feel that God has been speaking to us through this process is just his hope, um, that that is what these refugees need, is, is the hope of knowing that God is their protector and their shepherd, and he will get them through these, these situations that they face that are just unimaginable. Um, so Romans 15, 13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> um, so we will have a table at the Harvest Festival, September 10th, um, where we'll have our links. We had... We were supposed to have one on this slide, but things got mixed up. <laughs> um, so, and we would love to meet with people individually and give a better story than than this little quick rundown um yeah thank you and father we, we pray now for just, yeah, all those refugees who are at this camp and those who are fleeing hard and scary and dangerous situations throughout the world. Pray that you would be at work in their lives. Pray that you'd be at work through these types of organizations that they seek to provide help and support for, for refugees. Pray especially for, for Chase and Emma as they prepare to go that all the details that need to fall into place with travel and with funding and all that would that you would work through that to enable them to go smoothly and easily and we pray for them while they are there that you would give them safety that they would be effective in sharing and showing the love of Jesus with those who are they'll be interacting with and pray that you would um, work through them as they go on this trip to to meet needs of those who are deeply hurting and that you would work through them ultimately to bring glory to your name. We pray to in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Kirby's Beyond Border Mission is our Facebook Exciting to see our own young people heading out to the harvest field. So now we're going to uh, do a, what I call a holy song set because the titles have the word holy in it. And, um, you know, I thought about how would I introduce, well, first of all, let me say we're going to teach a new song. Holy Forever is very popular right now, so many of you may already know it, but we're going to do that first. And I thought, how would I introduce 
this song set, and I thought, maybe the Bible Project guys have something good. They do, so let's watch it. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. 
Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple, and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. If you'd stand with us. This new song that we're learning is going to become a classic, I think, because it's a great image of what we just heard about, the visions of God's presence, his holiness there. So let's sing together.
Jesus, and you made us pure. You made a way for us to enter into your holiness. Father, we praise you for that, and we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We never take it for granted. Would we never stop marveling at how incredible it is that you, a holy, holy, holy God, would send your Son to die for us while we were still sinners. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in last week's sermon, we talked a little bit about the, the hanging... Hanging Tower of, of Babylon, Hanging Garden of Babylon, and how it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. So I thought it's only appropriate that today I talk about a little bit about one of the, the modern wonders of the modern world, namely the, the Panama Canal. This is the Panama Canal. You probably know the Panama Canal that it cuts through the isthmus of Panama and it connects the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. And that's just kind of a side note. I find it interesting that. Right. Even though the Atlantic Ocean is in the east and the Pacific Ocean is in the west, when you go through the canal, you would think you would go then from east to west if you're going from Atlantic to Pacific. Right? But when you go through the canal, you actually go from the northwest to the southeast to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific. That had nothing to do with the sermon. I just always blow my mind that you go... <laughs> that you go west to east to go from Atlantic to Pacific. Anyway... A few years ago, I, I, read, I read this book called A Path in the Sea by David McCullough, and it's all about the creation of the Panama Canal. And it wasn't until I read this book in particular that I realized like, what a big deal the Panama Canal was. Like, I obviously understood that like, being able to go through the canal saved ships some time, right? but my brain always struggles to like, fully comprehend how big the world is. So I didn't realize that this, that an eight-hour, so think about eight hours and 50 miles to go from one end of the canal to the other. Right? So that eight-hour, 50-mile trip saves ships about 8,000 miles and five months of travel time. So it's a huge deal. Right? And it saves a ton of money, and so because of that, the canal collects nearly $5 billion in tolls each year from ships, and shipping companies that would rather pay that kind of money than have their ships go all the way around the tip of South America. So clearly, they kind of looking at the hugely important development. But another thing I didn't realize while reading that book is that like, people knew it would be a great thing for a long, long time. And so, in fact, the very first proposal for a canal through Central America was made by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in 
1534. So way back in 1534, people thought, hey, it'd be really handy if we could cut through Central America. And over the years, they tried time and time again, but it turned out it's really hard to cut a chunk of land out of jungle, wet Central America. But the, the project that would eventually morph into what we know today at the Panama Canal was started in 1881. It was under the direction of a French diplomat named Ferdinand de Lespes. And he, was, he had overseen the construction of the Suez Canal. So he had experience, he knew what he was doing, and based on his experience with the Suez Canal, he predicted that construction of the Panama Canal would take about six years, which would give it a completion date of 1887. However, the construction of the canal cutting through rainforest was much more difficult than a canal cutting through arid deserts in the Middle East. And so after eight years of setback after setback, the French team abandoned the project in 1889, nowhere near completion. Eventually, the U.S. government took over the construction in 1904. And then 10 more years later, in 1914, the canal finally opened which is nearly 30 years after it was originally predicted that it would be completed, and nearly 400 years after Charles V first proposed a canal. At the point of all this being, that for a long, long, long time, people have thought, hey, a canal through Central America would be really handy. People have dreamed of that for a long time. But things don't always happen in the way we expect. Things don't always happen on the timeline we want. But that doesn't mean that eventually they won't happen. Eventually the Panama Canal did come to be. But things don't always happen on our timeline or in the way we expect. And that's kind of the lesson that we're learning in the book of Daniel. So we're in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. This is our, our fifth sermon in a sermon series that we've been looking at what it looks like to live like Daniel as an exile in a culture that is hostile to the things of God. So as we kind of come to Daniel chapter 5 this morning, it's really important to understand that there's a a big gap between the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 5. Probably about 20 years between those two chapters. Just that there were probably about 20 to 30 years between Daniel 3 and Daniel 4. So there's these large gaps between each of the chapters in Daniel. Daniel 1 starts with Daniel as a teenager being taken out of Jerusalem back to Babylon to be kind of brought into the Babylonian court. He's a, he's a teenager, and that was in 605 B.C. And then in Daniel chapter 2, we saw teenage Daniel prove himself by interpreting a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But now, as we come to Daniel chapter 5, with all the gap between chapters, Daniel is an old man. He's probably about 80 years old. So if any of you are 80 and just take offense that I called you an old man, like I'm, I'm sorry, but facts are facts. So. so Daniel 5, right? you can recount the events of, of Persia defeating Babylon in 539 B.C., so some 65 years after Daniel was first brought to Babylon. 
He'd been living in Babylon, living in exile, serving in a pagan government for more than 60 years. More than three-fourths of his life has been spent living in Babylon. And as we've seen over and over and over again in this book, Daniel remains faithful to his God even when it gets him in trouble, even when it's unpopular. Sixty years he's been living this life in Babylon, in exile. And for me, as I kind of put myself in Daniel's shoes, I can't help but marvel at that kind of faithfulness. And Daniel was a teenager when he watched with his own eyes as Babylon came and laid siege to Jerusalem, God's holy city. He saw King Nebuchadnezzar go into the temple in Jerusalem and and take many of the utensils that they used for temple worship and put them in the house of the Babylonian gods. He watched all these disasters take place. And during his time in in Babylon exile, Daniel watched it two more times. Babylon went back to Jerusalem. And each time they destroyed more and more of the city. They took more and more exiles, eventually destroying the temple of God completely. We just saw in that video how central to all of Jewish life the temple was. And yet... Here Babylon comes and they destroy it and Daniel sees it happen and then he goes and serves that government. Daniel has seen Babylon prosper over and over again throughout the decades. He's seen Babylon grow in power while the Jewish people and the Jewish land have been relegated to subjects of the Babylonian Empire. If I were Daniel in that situation... It'd be so easy to lose hope. It'd be so easy to doubt that, that God was still at work. It'd be so easy to doubt that God cared at all about his justice and bringing about his good purposes in the midst of all that seemed to be going wrong. But what we see this morning, that living as an exile means trusting That while God's justice may not come in the way we expect or at the time we want, it will eventually come. This morning we see it come in Daniel chapter 5. The challenge of living in exile is kind of maintaining trust. That even when you look around you and it seems like things are falling to pieces, even when you look around and it seems like the world has gone crazy, even when we look around it, it seems like the world wants nothing to do with God. Even when it seems like God is absent. When we live as an exile, we, we still trust that God's justice will ultimately prevail. And that God is still at work to bring about His good purposes. That's why it's so important to to understand and feel the weight of the gap between the chapters and Daniel. If you just sit down and read Daniel chapters 1 through 6, back to back to back to back, it takes you like 15 minutes. 
And you can just kind of see them as this like, nice, neat set of stories that teach some good lessons and teach you to think like, man, I wish God would work that quickly in my life. But next week, we'll, we'll look at probably the most famous story in Daniel, which is Daniel in the lion's den. And if you look at most pictures of that story, like in children's Bibles or just different art depicting that story, like Daniel's usually pictured as a, either a teenager or like a middle-aged man. But Daniel's like in his mid-80s when that story takes place. And depicting him as a young man in those pictures then cheapens how much of Daniel's life has been lived in this exilic state. The reality is, despite the stories we get in the book of Daniel, we don't see most of Daniel's life in exile. We don't see all the times when Babylon is prospering and Babylonian leaders are praising the gods of Babylon for their prosperity, and Daniel can't help but wonder, like, where is God? We only see the relatively few high points of Daniel's ministry. And the point of those stories, the point of the high points, is not to be, hey, look how often God is working through Daniel. The point of those stories is that, like, you should be amazed that after 20 or 30 years of silence, after 20 or 30 years of trial and tribulation, when the opportunity presents itself, Daniel still chooses to be faithful to God. Despite decades of silence from God. Despite decades of living in exile in a land disinterested in God, Daniel still trusts that God's justice will ultimately prevail. Even if it's not in the way he would have wanted or in the time he would have expected. Daniel never loses hope that God's justice will prevail in the end. And in Daniel 5, we we see that trust and we see that ongoing hope finally pay off for Daniel. So in the gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, a lot has happened. The king Nebuchadnezzar has died, and then as often happens in empires like this, there's a lot of political infighting going on, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, becomes king. If you read in your Bible, it might say son, but if you then look at the footnote, it should say that word really means descendant. Pretty much everyone agrees that it's his grandson that is now the king. So King Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, had come to power in Daniel chapter 5. And also in that gap between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, there's been a lot of developments in the region as a whole. And so a new power has risen to kind of could fight Babylon. So the Persian Empire has grown during this time. And as we pick up this story in Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire are locked in war, fighting for superiority in the region. And probably right before this story takes place, The Babylonian army had lost a battle not far from the city of Babylon. So they've retreated into the city of Babylon to kind of regroup. And they feel quite secure in Babylon. Babylon has huge walls. And it was that they have enough provisions inside those walls to last 20 years during a siege. 
So it's a huge city. They feel secure. They feel like there's no way Persia is getting into these walls. We have plenty of stuff. We'll just hunker down here and regroup. So King Belshazzar gets everyone into the city, and then instead of panicking or planning a counteroffensive, he throws a party. That's where we see and pick up in Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, slash grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And they drank the, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here we have a thousand of the, the high-ranking royals of Babylon gathered together at this massive party. And they're drinking from the goblet that King Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and brought back with him to Babylon. And as they drink wine out of these sacred Jewish goblets, they're praising the Babylonian gods. Gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and iron and stone. So if you read that, if you know the story, or even if you don't know the story, but you're coming at it from a kind of generally Judeo-Christian perspective, it's really easy to think, well, obviously this is going to go bad for Balthazar. Like, clearly, like, what are you thinking, dude? Like, but just put yourself in Belshazzar's shoe for a second. Right? Because he must think, well, granddad Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who actually destroyed the temple. He's the one who stole these things and brought them back here. And nothing bad happened to him. His kingdom prospered. What he did was way worse than what I'm doing. And the God of Judah didn't punish him at all. Like, clearly the God of Judah is too weak to do anything about protecting his temple or preventing his goblet from being misused. So why should I care what I'm doing here? I think it's really easy for us to kind of fall into the same pattern of thinking. Like, well, yeah, I, I know I shouldn't gossip as much as I do, or I know I shouldn't be as discontent as I am, or I know I shouldn't be as proud as I am, but, but look at so-and-so. They're way worse than I am, and nothing bad is happening to them, so why should I care about what I'm doing? But what we see in this passage is that that type of thinking doesn't work out for Belshazzar. And it doesn't work out for us either. So here they are, they're drinking these, these, from these stolen goblets when in verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Right? Which, fair enough. Right? Disembodied hand shows up and starts writing on your wall. I'd be a little freaked out. Interestingly, this is 
the very first time in all of history that the expression knocking knees is ever recorded. And this story is where we get the expression like the writing on the wall. Right? And so there's a lot of our language that's influenced by these two verses. Anyway, so this, this disembodied hand appears and, and starts writing on the plaster of the wall, and it freaks everyone out. And so much like in, much like in Daniel chapter 2, right, the king like, doesn't know what this means, and he calls together all his astrologers and wise men and, and diviners, and he offers them a great reward if they can interpret the writing that this hand has done on the wall. But also much like in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's not included in that group. He's under this new king. It seems like Daniel's been kind of pushed aside and forgotten. They don't invite Daniel, but they bring in all these other wise men, but none of them can interpret the writing. Everyone's at a loss. But then Belshazzar's mom hears about what's going on. And she is old enough to remember Daniel and all the things that he did for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so she suggests to Belshazzar that, hey, maybe you should check in with this Daniel guy. And Belshazzar has no better idea, so he, he listens to her and he calls for Daniel. And so they, they go find Daniel and they interrupt whatever old man activity he's doing. Probably doing a puzzle somewhere or something. <laughs> and they bring him before the king. And Belshazzar explains what is going on and how he needs this writing interpreted. And so Daniel is going to reply, but before we read his reply, just kind of note here. In the previous chapters, whenever Daniel interacted with Nebuchadnezzar, he was always respectful and deferential. But his tone can be a little bit different here with King Belshazzar. He says in verse 18, your majesty, the Most High God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblet from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand, your life, and all your ways. Let's just pause there for one second, because I think that's not really the main point. I think it's, it's worth noting right, that the primary charge that Daniel levies against Belshazzar is that Belshazzar did not hold 
or did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Or if the New Living Translation puts it, you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. That's the primary thing that Belshazzar is accused of. I think if we're, we're being honest, right, this, this verse should give us pause. I think that's something we all fail to do more often than we care to admit. Certainly, certainly it's true for me. I refuse to acknowledge and honor that, that it is God who gives me breath and controls my destiny. We like to think we have everything under control. We've got it all figured out and that every good thing that happens, it happens because of our hard work or our self-effort. Like, I control my destiny. That's kind of our, our default moderation or mindset. That's why we have expressions like, God helps those who help themselves. But this reverse reminds us that ultimately it's God who gives us breath. It is God who controls our destiny. And failure to acknowledge that that is kind of the height of pride, at the height of hubris. And when Belshazzar fails to acknowledge that, God sends this hand. Daniel continues in verse 24. Therefore he sent the hand and wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom, which all sounds great until that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So Daniel was third highest for like, Ten minutes. As I said earlier, the Babylonians were very confident that the city of Babylon was secure and could not be infiltrated. But they did not consider what Darius the Mede did, which was that he diverted the water of the Euphrates River so that it forced it could enter through the city's water gates. The Babylonians didn't see it coming, and so the, the Medes and the Persians, they march in and they capture Babylon. And even secular history tell us that Belshazzar was killed during a party in his palace. So if we, we read this story, right, just kind of by itself, without the rest of Daniel, it'd be really easy to read this as a neat and tidy little story warning against the danger to pride and dishonoring God. Like, look, Belshazzar was proud, and he dishonored God, so he got what he deserved. So you better make sure you're humble and that you honor God, otherwise bad things will happen to you. That's a neat, tidy, straightforward interpretation. Just one problem. That it doesn't make sense to the rest of Daniel. Because Nebuchadnezzar was proud. Nebuchadnezzar dishonored God. Nebuchadnezzar 
invaded Jerusalem, God's holy city, and he destroyed the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. And what judgment did he get? He lived a long, successful life building and ruling over a mighty empire. So the question is, why? Why, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, why did God elevate him and give him a long, happy, successful reign as emperor? Well, when Belshazzar uses those utensils that he brought back, and God treats, it, God treats that sin as worthy of, of death and destruction of the Babylonian Empire, even when Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his pride, and he's celebrating all that he has done, he doesn't acknowledge God. He's, he's given the judgment of being made like a wild animal for seven years, but then, after that time, God restores him and makes him even greater than before. Whereas Belshazzar has this moment of pride and hubris, and he gets no second chance. It's just the end. So how does that work? And the answer brings us back to our main idea. That living in exiles means that we trust that, well, God's justice may not come in the way we expect or at the time we want. It will come. And for Daniel and the rest of the Jews who have been living in exile in Babylon, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to judge the Babylonians. If it was up to them, God would have judged Nebuchadnezzar immediately and harshly. But God's judgment didn't come in the way they expected or on their preferred timeline. But it did eventually come. The Babylonian Empire did eventually fall. But the Jewish exiles had to live in Babylon, in exile, for many, many years before they saw that judgment. What does this all mean for us? Maybe we can look at it from two perspectives. First, as we've been saying throughout this series, we, as we live this life, we live as exiles. We are citizens of heaven first. This world is not our ultimate home. So as we live as exiles on this earth, it's not hard to look around and say, where is God? Where is God's justice? And this story of the Jews living in Babylonian exile for decade after decade is a reminder that God's justice does not always come on our timeline. But this story of the fall of the Babylonian empire gives us confidence and hope that while God's justice may not happen on our timeline, God's justice will come. God is not blind right now to the things that are happening in the world. He sees what is happening. His justice will come. As we live in this world, as hard as it can be sometimes, we trust that whatever is going on around us, whatever we're going through, no matter how we are being hurt, God is not blind to it. And in the end, God's 
justice will prevail. He'll bring about his good purposes. That's one perspective we can look at this story from. The other perspective is that like, we ourselves are not only exiles on this earth, but we are also exiles from the Garden of Eden. Like, we are the ones right, who, who deserve God's judgment for all the times that we've been proud, for all the times that we've dishonored God, for all the times that we've thought that the good things in our life are the result of our own hard work and self-effort. We deserve God's judgment. A little ironic that whenever we think about God's judgment on somebody else, right, we want it to be swift and harsh and immediate. So whenever we think about God's justice on us, we want it to be slow and gentile and kind. Right? But we, like the Jewish people, are in exile because of our own sin. Right? Because of our sin that Eden was ruined and we have now been kicked out of Eden and now the whole Bible is really one big story about how our exile from Eden will one day end and we will return to the new heavens and the new earth to the new Jerusalem, the new Eden with God when there will be no more sin, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. So we live as exiled yearning to get back to that day. As we've heard and sung this morning, like the, the way we get back to Eden, the way our exile ends is through Jesus. Only Jesus and his death on the cross can forgive our sins and make a way for us to be brought back into God's presence. Only he can purify us. think about my own life and how long I lived not knowing Jesus, well then I'm suddenly thankful that God's justice is not always swift and immediate. But that as Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. It's that he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. It can be hard to wait on the justice of God when we see all the hard things going on in the world. But when it's hard to wait on God's justice, I urge you to remember how God was patient with you Remind yourself that God's patience, the slow justice of God is a, a gift and a blessing to you. He gave you time for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and draw you to repentance and faith in Him. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, then maybe right now God is doing that work. He's prompting you that your sin has separate you from God and the only way to be restored to Him and have eternal life is by trusting that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. He is being patient with you. But one day His justice will come. 
For those who haven't trusted Jesus, it means eternal death. For those who have trusted in Him, it means eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem. So don't presume on God's delayed justice. Instead, use this time to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. While we wait for God's justice, would we be like Daniel? Would we be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Would we wait for God's justice by living faithfully and trusting that God's justice will one day come? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you were slow to execute justice on us when we deserved it, but instead of judging us for our sins and condemning us to hell, you sent your Son. Jesus, to die in our place on the cross. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. Thank you that your justice towards us was not as swift as some would have hoped. And as we reap the benefits of your delayed justice toward us, would that give us patience and hope and encouragement as we live in a world where we see abundantly everywhere your, a need for your justice? Would you help us to be faithful? We live as exiles in this world. Would you help us to honor you as we live as exiles in this world? Would you help us to wait with confident hope the way Daniel waited with confident hope for your justice to come? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we dismiss here in a moment, I would invite you to go downstairs. There'll be coffee and treats downstairs. Just have a time of fellowship. And then we will meet back in here about 1045 for our quarterly meeting. We invite you to be a part of that. But as you go, would you go confidently trusting that God's justice will one day come and he will set all things in this broken world right. You are dismissed.
are great. Thank you for the help. And Doug, glad you showed up. So what is your, when are you going down to see your, are you going down next weekend? Probably sometime this week. Oh, you go down during the week?